All right, that's it. We're leaving New York. We're leaving. Why? Because we could have five times the space for a fifth of the price yeah. in Kansas. Tell Katie, tell Nala, we're all going to New York, to Kansas. To Kansas. I mean, we can do, you know. It's messy in here. We don't have it's to go to Kansas. It's cold outside. It's expensive. I just feel like it's closing in on me, man. I just can't t- take it anymore. Kansas? We don't, we, well, we don't have to go that far. <laughs> I mean, that if you're, extreme. It, it, for me, it's one or the other. Like, I'm going to be in New York and waste all my money on real estate. Okay. Or, like, if I'm moving because of real estate, I just am like, okay, that's the reason I'm going to Kansas. And then I'm just going to hate my life and come back to New York. No offense to anyone who lives in Kansas. I'm sure it's a wonderful place. Dude, you could go to, like, Colorado. It was awesome. All right. And it was cheaper and it was fun. You don't have to, like, suffer, you know? I know, you but I like go... being unhealthy in New York. There's a lot of delicious food and no one, you know, exercise. Well, people exercise, but it's not like Colorado where you feel shame if you don't, uh, you know, yeah. really, really. Or, or Kansas, because like the first thing I think of when I think of Kansas is just Fit people. Yeah. The <laughs> health center of the world. You know, I don't think I've ever been to Kansas. So, well, we went to South Dakota for a, a tech retreat one time. Yeah. Which that was, was amazing. That was actually really cool. For a vacation. And then like a few days in, I was like looking around and I just couldn't see anything but Buffalo. And I was like, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to be ready to get back to New York. soon." (laughs) (laughs) Oh man. Anyways, New York's been fun, but it's like also cold right now. And it's that time of the year. Winter before Christmas in New York, I love. It's very romantic. It's very nice. January and February are tough. Everyone's sick. The weather's changing. It's cold. There's no more Christmas decorations up. Although it's been pretty sunny recently. Actually, we've had a pretty mild winter. To be honest with you, if winter was like this all the time in New York, even more people would want to live here because it's we had like 30 degrees, 40 degrees, sunny days. Um, now it's cold, but yeah, yeah. I mean, this these these February is a tough tough yes. month for the Northeast. Well, that's when my birthday is February 3rd. So you know. That's See, like, you got okay. You got that to look forward yeah, to. That can get you through January. Yeah, another year, another year older. <laughs> oh God, I'm gonna be. It's the last time I'll be able to say I'm in my. Well, I guess I don't know. I'll be 33. So, is that so? That's still early 30s. But the first third of my decade will be done. So once I'm, I'll still be in the first third of my 30s. So everything's still green light go <laughs> make bad decisions you know still got some time you realize that once you now that when you get to like 34 you'll be like i'm still in the first half of my 30s yeah still in the first no but that's like mid 30s that's what it is mid 30s 33 is that mid 30s i don't think so I, so people stop i'm not counting. in my people mid 30s start, stop counting i'm in my early life. 30s until the following year okay so, early 30s keep telling yourself that <laughs> The thing is, in New York City, if you're in your early 30s, it's basically like being in your early 20s. (laughs) Yeah, that is true. (laughs) See, I was not in New York. I was in my late 20s and I was responsible. And then I moved to New York and I turned 30 and it basically is like I was in my early 20s again. (laughs) And now I stay up till midnight, you know, playing darts, um, getting offered drugs, you know, buying pizza at one o'clock in the morning. I mean, just really, you know really responsible things but it's a lot of fun so as long as i'm in my early 30s then good to go anyways uh when are we gonna make a million dollars so we can buy an office five times the size yeah you don't like uh recording the podcast in a little shoebox 
Well, you do make it really nice. You know, Ryan, I don't know if anyone watches this thing on YouTube, but you'll see our plants. You can see the plants in here, I think. Yeah, in our videos. Yeah, they look really nice. I have two plants at home right now that I murdered. <laughs> also, I Airbnb my place sometimes, so I, I that forces me to keep it all right. But like now it's in a pretty bad spot. I have a palm tree and like the bottom half is just like it's murdered. Just dead. Yeah. Yeah. So I need to I need to get whatever this guy is because he's cruising over there. Yeah. Plants are tough. I mean, like we buy these off Amazon and I think half of them just die. Have no chance from yeah, the beginning. Yeah, yeah. 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 But you know what to do with the ones that work, so Pour water in them. <laughs> okay. Anyways, let's. <laughs> Very advanced. All right. Yeah. What are we? What are we going? Sam's are we mature. About Sam's week? mature guy. He, he knows how to take care of plants and and, and himself. <laughs> um, we've been working on the homepage from RajJS.com, which is getting really close to being done, and uh, it's been fun working on it because we got the designs done by a professional designer, and I feel like. As we've gotten into doing more stuff ourselves, transitioning from working at like a company and being more specialized to like doing our own stuff with Embermap and Mirage and other open source projects we do, you know, we've learned more about the design stuff and, and, um, yeah, a lot of that stuff is just stuff that we didn't really have to really deal with, um, when we were more focused on like application architecture stuff, right? Yeah, absolutely. And now we're learning about like multiple background images and like I probably knew that at some point, but it's like, what's the actual best way to implement this like pretty sophisticated looking design, you know? That's interesting. If, if, like when you bring this up, the thing I don't think of is what's the best way to implement this. It's it's like, what is the best design for this? Like just there's like little details like with the Mirage JS homepage. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we had a professional designer do it. Um, it there's just a lot of little details yeah. that we never would have done in the past. Right. Just like a background with like little, little, um, dots you know, or little lines. dots that you can barely see. Right. But when you remove that, it looks weird. It right. looks like just like a plain white background. Right. So yeah, that's the thing that really, that I, that I really notice when we work on this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. It makes a difference. And then, and then because we haven't really done a lot of stuff like that, you know, we've, I think both of us for a lot of our, our, time doing front end web dev was like internal tools so they look good and we worked with designers before but not to this level of the marketing site kind of thing right yep so then you're talking about like svg assets and so then you know maybe your designer gives you an svg asset and then the question is like how do i work with this um and uh there's a couple different ways but then there's like a lot of svgs from programs like sketch aren't actually don't actually work in the web the way you would they render in 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 sketch so like svg is really cool because it's portable you can click copy and you get like all this code but then yeah it just doesn't work so we spent all this time trying to get it to work yeah i know i've heard i've been hearing this for years like oh svg is great it's portable Portable. and standardized I, i i don't i think that i don't know it that well like if you like i know there's people out there that like they can just write like simple SVGs by hand. Yeah, I don't. I can't. Yeah. So that's just like that's. We did write a little polygon. Yeah, for that, that little that angle. I struggled with there. Oh, and then we got rid of it actually. Yeah, yeah. So that was an example where we we used it to like we have this vertical like this cutoff thing. Wait, I want to go back. I want to yeah, go back. Go to ahead. Thing. Like that. I don't. Just I've never had like the oh SVG is is so portable universal. Yeah, SVG is great experience. Every every project I work on, I kind of stumble with SVG. And I we I've, yeah. we use SVGs. I'm yeah. not saying don't use them. It's just the whole 
this whole idea that like someone can put an SVG in a sketch file and then I can get it on a website. I just have never had that, that experience. No, I agree with you. So I think for you things there, first of all, is it fair to say like, it's just like programming in browsers and like, if you try to do something with CSS or JavaScript in one browser, it might not work in another. Um, and so that doesn't mean JavaScript isn't like portable or universal. It yeah. just means like there's differences you have to be aware of. Yeah. Yeah. Also yeah. too, like I'm not like, again, I'm not an SVG expert. Yeah. I barely know anything about SVG. Um, yeah. But yes. Yeah. I think that JavaScript analogy is perfect. Yeah. So like one thing we learned was like you, you can use um, shadows, uh, borders that are like uh, uh, outside or inside um, in sketch. Um, but in the web, really the only supported one is like a middle border or center border or something like that. So it just changes your design completely. So if you try to export that now, I saw somewhere that sketch was supposed to uh, accommodate for this. And when they export to SVG, they actually like change it so that it works with a middle border or center border or whatever. But anyways, that's the kind of thing, you know, that was one of like 10 things that we noticed about this particular asset that we tried to use and it, and it wasn't rendering right in the thing. So right now we just export it as a PNG and we're using that just to get it working and we might bring it back to SVG. Now SVG file sizes are smaller, but then we also notice with some of the stuff when there's lots of like filters and gradients and, and shadows and stuff, it can be really slow to render actually. It's like maybe the browser is actually way better, even though the asset size of the PNG is bigger. Browsers are so good at like rendering images and fetching assets, like that's actually the better way to do it. Is the, is the idea here that like the, S, <laughs> the SVG is an instruction of how to render the image, so it's it's smaller, mm -hmm. but um, the browser actually has to use CPU to like turn those like instructions into actual pixels where like a PNG is just might be like just binary encoded. Like, yeah, here's the I think image. so. And in particular, it was the it was the blur Gaussian blur on Safari. And given that the background lines, you can see them on miragejs.com right now. Actually, if you open it on like a 5K monitor widescreen, that they're going to be off because of Safari has like memory limits on what it will render there. Whereas like a, a PNG would work fine. It would just be a bigger asset. So that's the kind of stuff that's like, also it's just like, it's like leaky abstraction details in the sense that you want your professional to, you want to work with what the professional designer did. You don't, you don't want to have to like, absolutely. If I start looking at the SVG asset and I'm like changing the border or like the blur to do something that's going to actually work in the web, it feels crappy because I don't I want to make sure I'm um, I'm honoring like all of the little design decisions that went into that original asset and so that's where I guess ideally the designer knows the web medium and understands what the constraints are but in lieu of that like what's the best alternative approach you know so I think like what we're doing right now to start is just making them assets like that are externally requested browsers are great at that it's like really fast and like we can just optimize it later you know yep um but um, yeah, it's pretty interesting. And like, no, I agree with you. Kind of the second point, my reflection when you were talking, like I just don't feel comfortable or know really how to work with SVGs. It's like, you know, we used to use Font Awesome all the time and you just have like some text and you make an icon and it usually works out pretty great. It sizes correctly. Then it's like, well, Font Awesome, there's like some issues with that or it includes a lot of stuff or you want to use different icons. Maybe your designer gives you some icons. So then it's like, well, you don't want like an icon font or whatever for 
reasons that other people have told me are good. But um, now it's like, how do you scale or like size these? So like someone gives you custom SVGs or you make one or you copy one. You know, Steve has like all these icon projects that are like great to use. And like Tailwind works well with SVGs. You can just like add width utilities. But like it's not exactly the same as making it match like the text. And so if you have like a little learn more with a little carrot, how do you do that? I try to like pull it in and try to use Flexbox item center to like, but it just feel, it's just kind of like what you were saying. That's kind of, I also feel that where it's like, if I wanted a consistent design here, um, if we were going to work on a bigger app with like a bunch of icons and make it easy to work with and size, you wouldn't want to just, you know, use SVGs and like widths everywhere in a menu. It's one thing, but if you're using it with like text and stuff, it's another. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You so the alignment stuff is kind of weird to me with, with SVG, I guess like, you know, you, if you have an icon, you know, we were talking about like the layout stuff the other week where like, what are the bounds of a component should be like no margin. It should just always cut to the edge so that the parent laying out the component can choose the spacing. Well, if you look at an icon, typically there is white space because you want two different icons to look nice next to each other. Yeah. Well also too, the context is matters for the icon. So like an icon in a menu is, mm-hmm. is almost like an image or, or something where you don't want those margins. You want to control the layout, right? But an icon in, in text and like a title or a paragraph, you want that to behave just like a character would. Right. So but most icon icon sets have white space as part of the icons so that they're, oh, you, you know what I'm saying? You're saying like in the actual, it'll be like, like 32 by 32 pixels, but the thing won't go to the edge of the box. Uh, the bounding uh, box. Uh, 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 I see what you're saying now. Yeah. Which yeah. Is like yeah. Confusing, you know, or it's, or it's like makes it. Well, I guess the benefit there is like all the icons are the same. They're same <clears throat> height and width. Yeah. So the same transforms. Yeah. That is the point. But then it just feels sometimes like getting it looking right next to text is tough. I don't know. I think I just need to, it might be a line height thing. I was just messing with it this morning and I was like having a hard time understanding like how to think about this right where you have, again, like a learn more with a carrot and like, should the carrot be aligned with the baseline of the text? Should it be centered? And should the icon source be made in such a way that when it's centered with like flex or whatever, vertically centered with the text, it looks good. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Um, so where is the white space doing the work? Is it in the source of the image or is it in the layout part? So that's, I, I was just a little confused about that. So I, I need to look at some sites and see like how they position things. Go ahead. Yeah, I thought. I mean, I just, I wonder if you're like reaching for an abstraction that doesn't well, need to be there. Like we, hey, we only- hey, 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 I took that one personally. <laughs> <laughs> okay i wonder if we're reaching for an abstraction like no, like no you could say me um i've already undone like nine abstractions <laughs> i started on this stupid website we only we don't you like we don't generally use icons and no we we use them in very specific ways yeah. so i wonder if we can um just just futz it or whatever yeah like, just just yeah. like okay we're gonna this one's not gonna have a border because it needs to behave this way and this one is and but like carrot is a specific one by the way, when I say care, I mean C-A-R-E-T, like a little chevron, right? And I we have that in oh, the site. I thought, I thought you were talking about the rabbit. Okay. okay. <laughs> Learn more. Follow the rabbit. Um, we already use it in the site view spots. And so I was trying to get it to work good on the homepage. And it, and it just, anyways, I don't know. Yeah. I just have to look at how people are, are positioning things so that they look good. Because I was getting confused by it. Another thing about layout on the topic, we you know, we we have these um 
sections of pancakes we call them in the homepage, and it's like paragraph of text you know and uh image and then like paragraph of text over here and then image on the other side kind of flips back and forth that's like a pretty common layout thing for like a marketing page you look at like an apple page or you look like figma.com that's how they do it and um it was interesting thinking about what's the best way to do those kinds of layouts you know is it like a a grid because they stack on mobile so you have like some a text section and then you have like an image and they stack on mobile and then they become like a two up grid on desktop um but they're not really like a two up grid they're not really like 50 percent and 50 percent because then you end up like wanting more control changing the the width and the white space between them and so i happen to open up figmas uh in the inspector tools and they have a similar thing in terms of the overall layout but they use a grid so it made me really interested to want to dive into that more i i think i think my question here is is what like the grid seems too vague because you can have so many different ways you implement the grid so you can have like the like the bootstrap version where you have fixed no i mean like css grid oh css yeah yeah, okay that was i was gonna say bootstrap or like flexbox or yeah so when we do grids normally like the grid component we do it with like flexbox and tailwind like negative margins to like have gutters but like grid has all that stuff built in so they just if you like highlight, it's pretty cool too. Like once you highlight something with CSS grid, like the tool will show you all this so, stuff. It is so amazing. And I the, still haven't even learned it yet, but it, like, first of all, it's really, really confusing. It is really okay. confusing. Um, grid is in like tailwind 1.2, I want to say. And nice. I, I'm very excited for that because nice. I feel like I'm actually going to start to understand it. Yeah. I built a, um, for like the newsletter generator in Ember mm-hmm. map. I um that's CSS grid because it needs to collapse in certain ways and, and grid was the easiest to do that. Got you. And man, the 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 dev tool experience was so fun. You get the every grid gets outlined yes. in like a different border yes. color. Yes. It is unbelievable. That's awesome. Very cool. So yeah, they basically do that because how we were using Flex to do the grid with a gutter was exactly that. But like I guess in CSS grid you can literally specify like gutter. And then you just choose a value. So you know how that when we were working on that, we were like we wanted the white space to be forty pixels or whatever it was, and uh, you can just say that, and then like you can tweak it without having to like padding x negative margin this oh, or cool. whatever, and it can center it, and it's like this doesn't have to. It can be like you know the widths don't have to be. I think like a fifty percent fifty percent grid was like the wrong way to think about laying that out, or at least it was not how Figma did it, and it seemed like we were having a little bit of trouble with it. It's working now, but um, uh, yeah, it's just interesting. Like, I think layout is just hard. I mean, yeah. Um, Considering we run into different- Layout issues. Yeah, or like different learnings every few weeks. Yes. Yeah. Hey, with Grid, what's the browser support like? Like, is it- I don't know. Okay. I don't know. All right, I mean, we can look it up on Can I Use. Yeah, but if Figma.com uses it, it's pretty good. I mean, it's a pretty good sign. Yeah, that's true. But yeah, it's kind of, it's just been kind of fun working on these kinds of pages more because it's different from like the application UI that we're used to building. It's like marketing UI and it's different. It's like you, it is more complex, but it's, it's really cool. Um, so um, yeah, I'm excited to get that up. You know, someone just tweeted today and they were like looking at Mirage.js and they were like, did you see that? And they're, they're like, like, it's, it's, not, says it's, not, not, it's ready. not ready yet. And it's like, you know, I've been thinking about. Well, I actually went, I saw that and I went to marshjs.com and we just say like sign up for updates 
like when the project is ready. Yeah. We could just remove when the project is ready. Yeah. And I think all that yep. goes away. We also to ship the homepage. Yeah. That's what we should well, it's do. It's going to be a lot easier to just remove three words. And That's true. <laughs> um, in my mind, Mirage is like Mirage has been used with Ember for the last four years. Yeah. So it's um, totally. Know, and people we're not are, we're not lying. Totally. People are using it in React. They're using it in Vue. I know specific people. Um, and then also like someone's actually getting it working with Angular, um, which requires type definitions. And um, so there's a big PR in Mirage.js that's going to add like a bunch of types. It's oh, pretty cool. awesome, actually. Like Dan Freeman, um, uh, James da- C. Davis, right? From um, Yeah, he gave the TypeScript co- yep. talk at EmberConf. Yep. And um, uh, Zoltan, he, I think he's doing Angular now. I think he used to be an Ember developer. Cool. And um, also Chris Kriko has been like chiming in. So like they have all independently been working on like types in their projects with Mirage. And so they're all like agreeing on them. And I don't know about any of that. It's like crazy. It's like a thousand line PR. So it's like, you would think it wouldn't be like that crazy. Right. But, but it, this is like the, I, I mean, I, I just don't know. This is a type definition file. It's a type definition file, which so is how you type projects that are not written in TypeScript. Right. Right. So it's not converting Mirage to TypeScript right. and actually typing the functions. Right. It's okay. Cool. Cool. Um, but they have to agree and like you need tests because it's like really bad if you have something typed in an incorrect way um, and you're in like a TypeScript project that uses strict or whatever and like the types don't actually match JavaScript, but that's possible because like the types aren't being derived from the source code. Yeah, the types could be, a, yeah, you could just go in and lie and yeah. say, okay. So, um, and then like you have tests for all these types. I don't, I don't, it, there's like a lot, there's uh-huh. a lot. I, 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 of course, ideally, like if you could, I think TypeScript is a great fit for Mirage's source. And I think one day we will start to convert it over. But in the meantime, it helps people who are using TypeScript. And also apparently like if you're in an Angular project, I think everything like, ha- I think it's like you have to have TypeScript. Interesting. What, um, what is the, so I, I have two questions. First is, um, does, does Mirage maybe accepting like arbitrary number of uh, function attributes or function arguments? So like you can pass maybe this to you can pass a function or a string or yeah the multiarity yeah yeah uh, 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 signature of like route handlers yeah yeah does that complicate the typing I'm sure it does I'm sure it does okay and then this type file is like not derived from code so then what's a process for like we change yeah we change submits a PR well I think that's where the type tests come in so like I think if someone went and edited an option and which had an effect on the signature or something that the type test would fail i think okay i guess if they're exhaustive i don't really know yeah i wonder how that would work it would be interesting to see yeah we need to do a little deeper diving anyways we that's all like on the docket but like going back to what made us start talking about this was like is mirage being used is it ready it is and um uh you know um our first, the homepage, you know, we're going back to like this whole marketing triangle or like product triangle thing, which is like, um, let's get the homepage working. Um, after that, like making some educational content, a little egghead series would be really good. And, um, but yeah, the project is being used. 
And then like also just what what does 1.0 Mirage JS look like? Probably just matches like Ember CLI Mirage API just locks it in. And then we can start talking about like what are the changes we want to make? Because like there's a lot of little things that would improve the API a lot based yep. on the last few years of like JavaScript development. So yeah, so that's kind of where we're at. So I'm, I'll be excited to get that done just so that the homepage can be explanatory and reflective of like the actual state of the project. Um, um, yeah, that's what we've been working on. That's one thing. Um, was there, I thought there was something else about that project, that about the website that we wanted to talk about. Oh, well, we were, <laughs> we took a week to get a, a toggle working. <laughs> we did, we were messing with React Spring. We wanted the equivalent of animated if, uh, and so we made that. But um, animated container and yes, animated if, yes. And React Spring is like the library we used, and they don't have something like that, but they teach you how to do it in a lower level way. You actually compose um, animated React Spring like uh, animates between two values, but it doesn't do measurement. Measurement you can use a hook for from a separate library called React Use Measure. And so that was pretty cool. We learned a lot. Yeah. We still have a lot to learn, but um, I wanted to invest in it because I want, we have some ideas for things we want to add to the Mirage site. So once the homepage is done and, and there's no bugs and, and, and people are using it and stuff, we want to make a little like REPL examples page where you can say like, show me a one-to-many relationship. And then it's just going to like have the little Mirage config and show you what a response looks like. And, um, yeah, there's a couple ideas for like animations in the site that would make it easier to understand what's going on. Um, but um, yeah, React Spring is pretty interesting, man. Definitely like embraces the React uh, mentality that, of like that, sharp, small, sharp tools. Yeah, well, that's it right there. I think that one of the reasons we spent so long on this, yeah, uh, it, it wasn't. It was like three days. Yeah, um, is it? I felt like we were leveling up our React knowledge yeah. as well. Yeah. Just like the way you think about React and the way you think about hooks and all that. Yeah. So yep. it was, I think it was a good exercise. Definitely. In, in particular, it's like, it's basically for the footer where you sign up for the newsletter. And, um, you know, once you sign up, like the form disappears and then a thank you message shows up. But we wanted to make that like super robust and just, uh, you know, it reflows. So like the height that that takes up changes. And so you want it to reflow everything. And um, it's so funny. Like we had... The, the original homepage had this. Yeah. It was just still with has weird, it right now. Yeah. It still has it right yeah. now. It's just with weird like CSS transitions yeah. and like on transition end fires a callback that updates state that re renders a component. It's just not, it's like, um, it's fine, but it's just this, our code is so much more robust now. Right. And it's aligned with the model, the yes. mental model. It's not imperative. Um, so that's one of the interesting things we found when we were doing this, which was like, you want to like when I click, okay, I need to remeasure and do this thing. But then already you're like, that's not really what you're doing. You don't care about when you click. You you care about what state can this be in, and if you can figure that out and you know delineate all those states, then the libraries like React Spring and React Use Measure can do like the heavy lifting for you. So we get it working in one state from like true to false or whatever and it toggles and it resizes and then we like resize the window and what happens is like the thing goes from like 50 pixels in like the true state to like 60 pixels in the true state and like react spring animates it and you're like that's weird like that's not correct like if i'm resizing the window 
um, I don't want to animate. Like I only want to animate when it's going from true to false. So you want to say like, how do I say animate when going from true to false? But even that you're already wrong. Cause like you're saying when going and you're already back into imperative transition land. Right. Um, it's interesting because animations are like about transitions, but ideally if you can specify the states, then like the animation library can take care of that. And you don't have that logic in your, in your code. Um, so like what are all the states and it's actually not just true false it's like um you know true this thing can be rendered at every pixel width yeah that's exactly like that's a state exactly it's true yeah exactly like it's true and we're on a small screen and the thing takes up 100 pixels it's true and we're on a large screen it takes up you know 50 pixels um and so those are like two different states and because you're using react use measure which has like a resize observer which is looking for those things so that it's always up to date that is technically like a new state that's being triggered and so if your logic is not truly item potent in your hook then you're going to see something that you don't want so you kind of are you know that's what that was what we were going through and i feel like you know you're saying we like leveled up and react that was the part that was the general lesson that we extracted which is like um instead of saying instead of trying to force an imperative thing in, oh, we know that the only time that this can happen is when they click the submit button. So let's just do it in the, let's just do like animation enabled in the click button handler. And then we'll only animate if animation is enabled. Yeah. And so you can, the, 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 the trick here is you can still do it in like a react way. Yes. But it's wrong. So you can still say like set is animating. Yes. True. Yes. But that's not like, yes. I'm, I'm describing the in-between when I do that. Exactly. Exactly. And so, so you you don't. This is interesting because it's it, you don't really get feedback that you're doing it wrong because you can keep you can keep doing covering these it things. with like duct tape, like yeah. plugging the leaky holes with. You can keep writing React code that is like, um, I'm making air quotes, but the, like idiomatic React code. I'm using hooks. I'm yeah, setting yeah, state. Yeah. My component is like a. It's like it is a function of state, except I'm like miss. I'm not even like thinking about a bunch of those states. Right. Um, it's almost like, it's almost like you were talking about the resize observer and how the different screen widths, the, um, the div changes height. Mm -hmm. And it's almost like something like you use resize observer and it's almost like you get a warning that says something like, Hey, you're using resize observer. And that means that you now need to consider, um, you, you, if, if anything changes height or width based on the window size, you now need to consider these new states. Dude, it's even more than that because anything that changes any state of that component or an ancestor is going to cause a re-render because hooks run every single time. So it's even more than that. Like this is the whole argument for hooks was that you write a, a React component and you write some logic in component did mount and it runs once. So you can get away with doing all sorts of stuff that is not actually a function of state. Right, yep, yep. Whereas hooks often expose flaws in your logic and states you haven't identified and accounted for because they rerun so often. So um, even when I started like making this thing into like two different components that were like talking. Go ahead. Go, go ahead. ahead. Oh, I was going to say, I get what you're saying. Like hooks actually, yes, 100% agree. They do identify the flaws. They expose them they expose more them often. Because or, they're they're running yes. more. But you can still I avoid. Want, a lot of times when my hooks are running, I'm not. Like I have a good mental model for why they're running, mm -hmm. but like the use measure stuff is, is a good example. Like I'm not considering that a new state. I'm just oh, it's a total black box. So I want the fact that it triggers a re-render 
is actually should be an implementation detail. That's the thing. Yeah, re-render should be implementation details uh, for well um, well behaving hooks um, and well behaving components. So the fact that use measure. Maybe use measure uh, requeries the DOM every second. Maybe it uses resize observer to update its state whenever the user resizes the window. Who knows? It shouldn't actually matter. You should be able to at any moment in a well-designed, well-implemented React application just call re-render on the entire and, thing, and, 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 and the UI should be completely yep. uh, up to date. That's the whole. That's the. That's when you can do that. React works best, and that is the way it's designed to use. I want. I want something that's going to tell me. Like, hey, I'm re-rendering and these things are different. And like, did you think about yes? Yeah. And is there a state that you're not considering? Um, right. I don't know. I might just be like wishing. Well, well, there could be something that just highlights something when re-renders are triggering. So like you're working on an animation and you're like, oh, this seems to be working pretty well. And then like you like change the breakpoint and you're like, oh, wait, like we just ran our animation code again. I didn't real. I didn't really think about that, you know. Yeah, I really want something that's like. No, it's funny. The it's, component is re-rendering now because the width of the screen changed. Yeah. Like, did you know this was a new state of your component? And I'd be right. like, I would have to scratch my head and be like, Yeah, I did. That makes sense. Right. But before it happened, I didn't know. Totally. And like, no, it's actually a good point you raise, which is like, uh, when you go to, let's say you go to implement an animation, you're thinking about the one specific case, and so you're like. Oh yeah, I need an effect like when it, when did submit goes from false to true, run this code. But that's like completely wrong. You want that's like the most general, unrestricted, liberal view of the of of what the behavior of this component is. When in reality, you want the most restricted, conservative view. You want to say, okay, we're adding an animation here. Let's define the one specific state we know, or the two, and everything else actually should like ignore all of this code because we want this to be idempotent. And like we're going to start with just the two states that we actually know. So like basically, how do you get to the point where your hook code is idempotent and can be run over and over again? It's like not normally how you think about doing it when you first go to write something. Maybe there's like when you go to click a button, a form to submit a button and then trigger a AJAX request. Like nothing about that. You're not thinking about idempotence at that point. But like really, you sh- you should you kind of should be. I wonder if there's like um, I know in like Haskell there's a thing called quick check, which you you basically say add takes two numbers and and returns a number and sums them and there, it can like basically uh, scaffold out a whole bunch of tests for like what happens when i oh it's like fa- it's like generated tests yeah. for like every possible yeah 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 i kind of want that for like like a react component where it's like uh hey i'm gonna like do a bunch of steps in your component like i'm gonna click i'm gonna fill in the text box i'm gonna click the submit button but then at some point i'm just gonna call like 60 re-renders in the next uh a thousand milliseconds yeah and so like i'm gonna really like make yeah, sure yeah, that yeah. while your component is getting input and and being interacted with it's going to start re-rendering interesting see- or like you could just say oh there's like four pieces of state on this component here are the valued valid properties like this one can be true or false this one can be a string i'm just going to start calling set state on your component with all valid properties and different things and let's see how it, it behaves Ooh. yeah like, like really what you want is like this is hard to test manually when we're developing, but when we were developing, like we made a little window.toggle function which would change the state so we could kind of do it easily. But what I really want first is to like slow down time. Second is to like toggle some state that triggers the state that we care about. So the animation goes from one to the other. And then while that's running, 
have something else happen that would cause a re-render so we can make sure this is truly robust to re-renders. You know, you know what I'm saying? Yep, yep. So that's the stuff that's harder to do. And those are the things that you don't think about um, that can cause issues. All this being said, when we did identify the states, it was really cool to see the, the, um, the use measure thing working because I think in a lot of times if we had written something like this in another, you know, tool, like we wouldn't have thought about the resizing thing, but it, there was an aspect of it that quote just worked because yep. of, uh, of it was accounting for every state. And it was really neat to see that. I, I really liked when you did the, uh, you put together like a little table and it had at the, at the top of the table, the headers were like all the variables. And then every row in that table was like the possible values of those. Oh, and the con- So if you had like, um, did submit and and some and the measurement the, had happened and yet the measurement or yeah yeah exactly yeah, yeah, the, yeah this should be the state of the component right 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 the next row you well did that make. was the way we finally even got to but, figure out what was going on because we were so confused and we were like all right what is every possible state that these things can be in but I really think that's a, a awesome approach to take with these like yeah. even if we opened up Excel in the future and like use that as like a way yeah not yeah like yeah use yeah. it as yeah. a way to like think about how excel updates but use excel to fill in all exhaustive the states. list of all the states yeah yeah that's like a really good yeah that was just really one once we did that yes like i feel like we were there was less guessing yes about oh what is this value what is this value oh what what happens when i do this oh yes. put a debugger there yes and it was it was clear of oh okay well here's a state we didn't account for right right in particular it was hard because use measure this is a, one of the <laughs> it seems like the hardest class of problems always falls in this bucket, which is you have to render something to know what it is. So use measure like to measure the Dom has to be rendered. So the very first pass of your hook of your function, it's not going to know. So use measure has not had a chance yet to calculate, to measure the actual Dom. So you have a state yet, in the yet, beginning yet you're using use measure. To, yes. to, to figure out the return value of your component in some sense. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Yes, exactly. So, the very first time you have to account for the state where use measure is like null and your things are auto. So what does that mean for your animation code? Like what does it mean for as that state of your animation code? What is like the from and to there? Um, so pretty interesting. Um, so then like you account for that, you measure it. Now, you know, and then now you can say, yeah. And we, we ended up having to use a ref um, to account for the fact that like, once we realize you can reset. you say that as if it's like it's like an admission of failure. It is. No, I it don't. Is. I don't. I don't. I, I every React component I write has refs. No, but it shouldn't, man. I just saw some someone who teaches React for a living say, "Here are the things that are like the escape patches, or like these are the power tools I use in in, in extreme cases." But I try my hardest not to use them until I absolutely need to. Sure, and sure. ref I, is in that bucket for sure. Okay, I mean that's fair, but. I don't know. Like even like I think of like use previous and use measure. All that stuff uses refs. Well, that's fine. That's fine. I just don't. I don't think we should. We but should. it's like an implementation detail. It's no. We literally have a ref that is 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 looking at the state from the previous render and this one and seeing if something's changed because that's kind of like the only way we could think of to describe. Um, because yeah there's a difference between like is rendering for the first time versus is yeah so the form let's talk about this so the form is in two states right and so you have true you have true and then you go to false and when you go from true to false you want to animate yeah but um 
what if you start out as false? You don't want to animate there. You just want to show the false state. Mm-hmm. So in that case, you need to know if the previous state was undefined or if the previous state was true. Right. Because that's going to affect the animation. That's going to affect the the, the spring. Right. It's actually, yeah. The reason it's, it, it, it makes sense when we, when we finally look at it, there, there is a lot, uh, we have like a multi-stage animation defined. So that's where this came up. If we had just done it, like begin state and end state, it wouldn't have mattered. It would have worked. Um, but we have a multi-stage animation. So just like when I used to do a lot of D3 code, that is imperative code. If you think about a state machine diagram where you have all the states of your application and the lines connecting them. So admin is true. Admin is false. Submit is true. Right. And you have the lines like, uh, you know, most of your UI development should be concerned with describing the states, defining the states. And then like you have logic that transitions, but like the transition stuff is just about the state. The rendering comes from state. The rendering doesn't come from the transition. Right. That's mm-hmm. like, that's like the main idea yeah, behind yeah, declarative yeah. rendering. Right. So that's why normally if you have anything, anything that's any rendering logic that's derived from transition concerns, you're going to make a mistake. Like I click this thing now, slide down this thing. Like you're, yep. the reason we needed it here though, is because the animation is actually about the transition. So if you think about it, if you're going from state to state, like, and you have something that's more sophisticated that describes the transition here, then you need to write more code like you need to do more in that case and so that's why use previous mattered for us because it was about what the ui looked like during the transition it was it was ui as a, a, a as as the transition as opposed to like that's why ui as a function of state didn't work in our case if that makes sense the actual transition changed based on which arrow we were going back and forth from and so this is just like oh i see what you're saying now because okay. animation is itself like about the transition it's not about the function of state it's about the transition it's different so like when i was writing d3 code and like you add a column or you remove a column and you want different things to happen you're writing code about the transition there so hey if you write if you somehow have to use more than just like the state it doesn't mean it's a bad thing it's because you're writing code about the transition well okay i have a question then so since it's about the transition should there be like an escape hatch for to just go like bananas with imperative code? I think the way you do it is like we would p- take the code that we did and put it into like a declarative hook. What would it look like to make our animation like a declarative hook that truly takes like the two states and can animate between them? And we basically did that, right? We wrote a component that was called like fade between. So that, w- that was the answer basically. Um, so I think that's the answer. It's just, it's just think about it. So think about it. you, you, you open an app like, and it renders the home page, and that's it. That's one state. The app has one single state, and it's basically like the URL, and it renders the whole app. Now you add a, a fade-in transition to the app. So have you introduced a new state to the app? Well, if the animation takes a second, and you're rendering at 60 frames a second, like you now have like 60 states of your application, right? But from the JavaScript's perspective, like it's one state. It's like, you know... Um, app is booted is true. Like that was the, that's the only piece of JavaScript state in your whole application, right? But if you add an animation, like mm-hmm. how many states can your app actually be in? It's like 60 different frames of that animation, like as it fades in, 
opacity is zero, opacity is one over 60, opacity is two over 60. You see what I'm saying? I, I get so what you're saying. So it doesn't make sense to put say, that state into memory and say our, our, our UI is a function of state because that would be like totally impractical. Ah, uh, uh, okay. You see okay. what I'm saying? So that's why you have an escape well, patch. It's an imperative escape patch. It's like a, it's just a transition, but like we don't model that state the same way we model the state that drives most of our UI. When you said that example, I, my, I wanted to just say you have two states. You have like the, you're, you're animating. That's fine. Your final thing, but, but you actually have like 60 or hundred right, points. Yeah, or I guess you're right. Yeah. Think about it. What we said earlier in this episode is at any moment in time, you should be able to stop the world and call re-render on your whole thing. But for animations, that's not true because we don't capture the state. This was like Rich Harris's whole point with the fact that like you have lots of state that's actually not in React, like your cursor position yep. and your mouse position and like the size of the window. So like it's not actually true that you can just completely render your UI from state every time. Okay. And earlier we did say like the window resize stuff. We don't. Yeah, we don't like think of all those. I mean, I guess we do think of all those states. Well, but if we're it not, we wouldn't say like, oh, this component can be in a thousand different states because exactly. a thousand the, there's a, the monitor is a thousand pixels. Exactly, exactly. So there's like a million different states. Okay, I like, like that. Yeah, I like that. yeah. So it's like you're trying to simplify for the purpose of app development, right? It makes sense to simplify and shrink the state to the lowest possible amount. So that's what we typically do. Like, um, that's why if any state can be derived from other state you want to do that. And so that your actual state is like minimal. Um, but sometimes, especially with like things like animations or things that are concerned with like transitions, that is where that's going to be where this, that's why this code is harder because we can't write it in the same way. We can't derive it like as a, uh, as a function of state. That's why things like react spring are so good because they abstract it and you actually can just say here's the initial state here's the final state we're going to take care of everything in between the keyframes in between so that but then if, we, if i have a component no matter how many times it re-renders while that animation is running react spring is going to do the right thing and that works because yeah. react spring actually remembers all of its values and all of its re-renders and stuff so it can be re-rendered and interrupted and stuff well it actually think it animates outside of react but but it, it, the, it does the, know if the, the state changes and it affects like animated.div exactly is, I think, the thing that has a memory exactly so it's pretty cool um but it's just it's also why we were struggling with that because and why we had to use the ref and why no it's, i don't feel guilty about the ref i'm just saying in nor in the it's like in the course of normal application development you should not need anything like a use previous um yes or even a use mounted even though we've needed that as well but that that is like it's fine it's not it's not it's not an admission of failure on react's part it's just it's just the parts of your app that you can't write as a function of state are going to be not as nice and clean because the, that's like the best model and that's the one that react and ember and everyone embraces and so yeah that's just that's just why it was hard i like what you're saying i i, I feel like if i get a new project in three weeks and um I was like asked, oh, is this a function of state? Is it not? I would have to, I would just have a hard time like recognizing that. Well, it's like back, dude, we have a whole D3 series on Ember map and uh, like halfway through the series, it's about wrapping all this imperative code in a declarative interface exactly the same way yeah. because from the perspective of the app developer, you want them to think, oh, the profit went from 100 to 500 and like the bar is going to transition and like what if it goes from 100 to 500 and then 300, like you select three different companies while the transition is happening you need to account for that imperatively in the code itself, in the bar but, but chart. But you still code. want the interface to be yes. declarative yes. from, um, when I'm rendering the bar chart. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
So maybe that's maybe that's like a good thing for us to start practicing, which is like if you were actually building a React app on a team and you saw sprinkles of this imperative stuff everywhere, it makes it harder to like understand what's going on because you're like like the first time we wrote that button with the animations, like we have like effects and layout effects and it's like lots of a mixture of that. Mm-hmm. Whereas ideally you want like a declarative boundary in the same way. I mean, when you say that, like yeah, that th- this makes a lot of sense because I can recognize HTML elements, yes. like the, the video element. Yes. And I just know if you ask me how to code a video element component, it would be so like I would know exactly what to yes. do. I'm going to hide all the imperative stuff inside the component. And then the external interface is going to be is playing true false right, and exactly. all the declarative stuff. Exactly. So it's easy. Maybe it's just like because I've written so many of those components, mm-hmm. it's easy for me to recognize with this React stuff and the animation stuff that yeah. you're talking about. It's just not easy. Yeah. It feels like, um, yeah, I don't know. It feels like I'm like missing something or I should have like a checklist for identifying these components. Well, it's I just don't. different because if you are writing D3 code and you're like on enter, on exit, do this thing, like you're thinking, right? Even those APIs on enter, on yeah, exit, yeah, yeah. on update, those are about transitions and step you know steps that are happening um but that's what you want when you're doing that because you need that low level thing to describe precisely what happens when a new element comes in um uh, yeah that's a pretty good rule because the same is true with the html elements they have like on time update exactly on play on pause so if i see an on keyword i just know that i have to like get in this mode right exactly or like you're you're doing something and and um, it's like it's almost like you want to learn about use state and and um, it's like you want to learn about use state separately from use ref or use context or like you want to say oh these hooks are good for parts of your app that are functions of state and then. Here are some examples of times where uh, you actually have to accommodate for the transition that's happening, um, which is why it feels like you want sometimes, like when the user submits the form, run this code, but just do it once and just do it as a result of this action right here. You know, it's like you want to go out of the rendering um, cycle. You want to go out of it. But then again, like we saw, like sometimes it actually improves it where if you had just coded that animation as a one-off thing as a result of like a click, but then you had forgot to accommodate for like the resizing. So that's the thing, right? We know the benefits of declarative rendering. The more you can express declaratively, the more uh, unanticipated state transitions the tooling can take care of for you. But um, when you have to go outside of that paradigm and write imperative code, it can be hard to know exactly which how to do it because the escape hatches um, like effect and layout effect and ref are still trying to shoehorn themselves into like uh, imperative into the declarative style. I think there's like this use imperative handle like hook that I haven't looked at yet. Um, But like something like that might be might have been a lot easier for us to accommodate for this thing. You know what I'm saying? And just say, okay, like this is where we're like escaping out. So, like, if re renders happen, we know we don't want to write this code again. Um, so, yeah. Like, cool. like I'm thinking, like, the D3 code, right? The bar chart. 
you would just, if something's re-rendering, you would just ignore all the D3 code. You wouldn't write D3 code to be able to run again and again like the actual D3 code. You would just say, no, nothing has changed. We're not going to run this code again. You yeah, know what yeah. I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, yes, yes. Anyways, I don't know if that's all, if that any made any sense, but. No, it helps. It's, it's, I just, it's I, back to Rich Harris's point about about like the re, UI as a function of state is like a golden, um, desirable like paradigm that is like um, elegant and for some people, right? This is like the whole goal of this. But then the reality of like stateful UI development is that there's going to be lots of times where that's not actually what you're doing, and so should your tools and frameworks and APIs go all in on that or should they admit that there's parts of that and, and make it simpler so but again there's yeah there's trade-offs so anyways it's just kind of interesting um to see animations are always kind of tricky they're kind of hard in that way but uh it's pretty cool so um i i don't remember how, how we got on this because i feel like there's something else i wanted to say before we started talking about all this stuff let's see rolling back we we're talking about building the website yep using use spring how we like that mm-hmm. um sharp tools sharp tool yes yeah 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 i think just the final takeaway there was like with ember animated you literally just do like animated if and that's basically what we wanted and it was like two lines of code in ember animated and this was like three days and like more than two lines of code <laughs> yeah but um <coughs> it's pretty interesting well also adding to that that's like we got this done. I'm happy with with the final result. But if we had to do something like Ember animated um, sent and receive sprites, yeah. like I just, I have kind of have an idea for how we would do well, that. The thing is, and there's it could examples. Take six months. No, there's examples of like using a cross route transitions. Okay. Um, okay. So like I would actually feel that's that's the thing. As as nice as the high level APIs are, there's many times I've worked with with tools like Ember animated and felt felt just stuck because. Um, they are so high level, whereas with Spring, as low level as it is, both when I was using it on my site and with this work, I never felt like I was completely. I mean, that's not really fair. Like there's times where we wanted more documentation and stuff, but there was enough examples that we could just keep going. Yeah, yeah. Um, we didn't just stop and say, I don't know what to do here. Whereas like I, I have had that happen to me with Ember Animated. Like I have an idea for something I want to do and I literally don't know what to do besides like trying to read the source code and literally understanding how it works and i i did not i haven't had that yet i know but i've i've said this a few times i don't know if that's a function of of ember animated being designed with just holes or just or which Lack i don't examples. Which, which i don't think is the case yeah. i think ember animated is robust yeah from what i've seen yeah i think the ember animated has no docs yeah um no that's examples. why yeah no examples that's why you're getting stuck it's not i think there might be some there's some parts of it even I was chatting with Ed about it at EmberConf where, you know, it, it approached the problem from the, from the outside in. So it said animated if is like the first thing we want, let's say, or animated each, right? And those are amazing things that work extremely well. But React Spring's almost the opposite where it's like, we don't even care about measuring the DOM. That's not our concern. But um, it's just like React Spring is literally just... Trans, like stateful transitions on objects. Um, it doesn't even know you're re- rendering. Well, animated div knows you're rendering, but the core spring mechanism is like an object with X of one to an object with X of 23. That's it. And um, 
So it's way, it's just the opposite. And yeah. so you can apply those to any part of your layout you want. Whereas like, again, animated, Ember animated has like this concept of animator, which is like a component that it has like a representation. The It's just a different thing. I'm not saying that it couldn't be expanded, but yes, of course it's because a lot of the examples are not there and, and stuff like that. But I think that also goes back to this. I think there's a reason there aren't, there's a reason there's not as many examples and it's not just because like the react community is bigger It's because two people know how to use that library. No, 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 but no, no, no. But this is the thing, dude, high level libraries are fundamentally more complex, have more scope and are harder to understand. Like think about it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, so I think again, D three is very low level. It's like, doesn't come with like a bar chart component out of the box. It's very low level, but like it has a smaller surface area. And so, it's harder to make it do what you ultimately want to do, but it's easier to learn and use at the beginning. So, um, I think there is a. I, th I don't. I do not think those are independent variables. Um, of course, you can make a high-level library or API and invest a lot of time in good docs and examples. But I'm just saying it's fundamentally harder. Think how much mirage, easier Mirage yeah, would yeah, be yeah, yeah, if yeah. we didn't have like some of the stuff in there. Um, it wouldn't be as powerful, but it would be you know. Yeah, Mirage versus Pretender. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, so, so yeah, just back to our discussion of the last few weeks. It's like, I'm, I'm not willing to throw away high level libraries because that's, of that. I know I'm putting words. In well, no, no, it's, it's about the fact that like the high level we've had this conversation. We talk about this a lot. Yeah, it's fine. It's a recurring theme on the, on the show because high level APIs are hard to get right. And so the question is, but they're obviously more useful. Like there's no question. A high level abstraction is way more useful than a low level one provided it 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 meets you meets your needs okay but right? it's not it's not fair animated if is literally like the perfect thing for what we wanted in right, that right, case right. right i think i think if i was arguing against what i'm saying it's not fair for me to compare the perfect high yeah, level exactly. api versus the low level thing because you can't it's the real high level api you end up with you can't get to that high level api exactly. without that low level thing well that's the question what's the best way to get to the best high level api and Sometimes people approach it from the outside, from the top, and say, "Let's start with our ideal picture of a high-level yeah, API." Yeah, yeah. And then some people say, "Listen, what's the what is the minimum lowest-level API we need to be able to even achieve the thing we're trying to do here?" And um, it's like a smaller abstraction. And then as we see people build it, like in our app, as we build more like fade betweens and different state things, like we could end up with a high level API that's re really great to use. And you could even imagine extracting to a library, right? But mm -hmm. um, we get there through like starting with a low level and, and iterating. So it's a mix, right? You, you need some design. Um, you need some top level, top down design to suggest good high level APIs and see how they fall apart. But um, again, it's more just like in the React community, the de facto approach is going to be let's start with something that is that is smaller and lower level and is harder to use to get your desired effect but uh, yeah there's some benefits it encourages yeah. experimentation yeah yeah and in some sense it's simpler to like learn in the same way like react was simpler to learn than view even though it's like hard to build an app harder to build an app with yeah. react than view like for sure that's that's very true but like when you're using view and you're like oh is it like this thing or is it called that or whatever React's API is like is pretty small, um, super. As far as like functions and, and, and JSX and props and state go, it's like you can learn that in like a day, you know.
Yeah, just trying to think of like what's the. <laughs> There's like, well, what if what if we just make like thousands of high level libraries and like one of them will be one right. of them will hit. You know, like what's that? Like a thousand monkey are are enough. Get enough time, like monkeys can write Shakespeare. <laughs> yeah, something but that's like not that. true. <laughs> okay, we just need to wait like four billion more years for the perfect uh, animation library. Okay, all right. Yes. Yeah. Was- um, no, I'm just. I, there's just like a lot going through my mind right now. But um, um, I also think like um, I know me personally, but I think it's true for a lot of developers. It's tempting to jump to a high level abstraction that feels good. And I think part of like this last year for us has been getting comfortable with like messier code, lower level stuff, admitting we don't know early on. And that's kind of fun too, you know? Oh man. I mean, it's been a lot of fun. I love it. Yeah. We can talk more about this next time, but like this little CSS and JS library we're using, we're, we're still using tailwind, but you know, there's, there's like, especially with this marketing stuff, there's times you want, it's very specific. There's no reason to have a general, um, CSS class that, falls within your design language like you're just making a little picture that has a scrolling thing or that's positioned right here on the home page and um yeah i think we have like a background position uh thing and we're not going to make a, a utility for that because it's only used 617 on, pixels yeah, or something yeah and uh it's just great in, in react you can install like style components and then you can just use like responsive styles in line so it's like exactly where you'd want it that's one of my favorite things about working with react is like the messy stuff is just all contained in a component, whether it's like another component that I need to make to reduce some duplication. I don't have to make it a global component. It's just a little function in that file. Uh, some inline styles, it's all in that file. If we redo that, we can just delete that file. There's no global styles anywhere. It's great. Well, that go that go going back to your messy code and it being fun. I mean, taking a, a function and splitting it up into like, three functions in the same file like that's that's actually really fun it is fun and it's also i want to say that it's not just fun i actually think uh like tinkering is a great way to get to good code and good software and so tinkering is not just about fun it's about um i actually i actually so i think that's important i think that's what makes it so fun yeah is you can it's a it's like faster feedback yes yes what is the fastest way to split this thing into two functions like yes literally pasting a function below is yep. going to be faster than creating a new file or whatever, yep. whatever your system requires. Yep. yep. Totally. Um, and so that feedback and you can, that feedback and iteration get you to the result. And that's, what's fun. Cause you no, that's a great, no, that's a great way to say it. That's like, yeah, it's like if you're design, you're building a new page and you want to tinker on the UI, you go to the dev tools and you start doing the CSS properties. That is the first step. That's a legitimate first step just because that's not a scalable or um, like uh, architecturally sound way to like do things. It's a first step that gets you to a final step that's better. But um, so like the better the better all those in between steps are, and the faster they are, I think it's 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 going to end up with better results. So that's just another kind of fun aspect of working with React. Nice. It feels like code. Like it feels like working with with normal code where you would just be able to refactor things and. But it's all UI, so it's like super fun, you know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So that site should be done soon. We didn't even get to talk about a new Ember Matte video we have coming out on the router. Um, it's gonna. It's in our. We have this "What's New in Ember" series where 
partly to help even us, but I think it's the best way to learn is, is to see what's changed in Ember. Now Octane's out, so we're eventually making our way to all the new Octane features, but right now we're in like 3.10, 3.11, going over the motivations and use cases for all the new features that came to Ember last year. And this one is about the route info metadata. So that should be on Ember map like Monday, probably. And um, so by the time this, this comes out, it'll definitely be on the site. And um, that's a that's a free series. So if you're interested in 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 some of those RFCs that have been merged and features have been added to Ember last year, definitely check that out. Cool. And maybe we'll talk more about that next next week because Ember's router is great, man. It's really great. It's really yeah. awesome. Yep. It's like, yeah, it's it's like back to the we don't know what to do until we render with the router. It's like enshrining. It's like in enca- It's like um, crystallizing parts where we know things before we render and it really makes things a lot simpler in, in many cases. There's a thing that we always, always say, whether it's an Ember map video or like consulting where we talk about like the router being a choke point. Yeah. And I just, I love that. Yeah. Just that, that mental model. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, it's, it's great. It's great. So yeah, we'll talk about that next week. Cool. All right. Thanks a lot, everyone. Happy new year again. I guess this is like our second podcast in the new year. Yeah. You We're know, slacking a little bit. I, I had this thought of like, you know, the first time like I email someone in January, like I'm always like, hey, happy new year. Hey, Sam, happy new year, blah, 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 blah. I had this thought, I was like, okay, what date, what, what is it? What is a cutoff date for happy new year in an email? It's like February 8th and you're like, no, happy no, new I, year. No, 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 no. Like, oh, I, think, I think once you get to February, February 1st, yeah, it's like, it's too too late. Yeah. Saying it like January 15th. Well, it's January 17th right now. Yeah, I haven't, I think oh, I- It's already 1.27 in the afternoon, that's wonderful. <laughs> I thought it was like 10 a.m. January 15th. That feels pretty good. That feels pretty good. Okay. All right, everyone. We'll see you next week. Bye. Bye.